Welcome to episode four of False Neutral, the motorcycle podcast from the Hooniverse Podcast Network, recorded Wednesday, March 16th. With us today, your hosts as usual, Eric and Pete, and our guest today is... Wayne Moyer on uh, Hooniverse's Fodder 650, I've been there for ages now. And a very prolific uh, author on the sometimes live, sometimes dead Atomic Toasters. Yes, I need to work on that, actually. I have a whole series I need to put up. Excellent. And our topic today will have something to do with sometimes dead, sometimes live. But before we go into that, <laughs> we have our old business segment. And uh, Wayne, you were supposed to join us and couldn't be here for our beginner bike episode. So uh, why don't you take a couple minutes and give us your pitches for what you think are good beginner bikes that we missed talking about? Well, let me go with two. One's Japanese and one's American. The, the Japanese one was uh, one of, not my first bike. My second one was a Suzuki GS500E. They made them from 1989 through, I think, 2011 The, the in both an E and F flavor. The E being naked, the F being the uh, dressed-up version later on the, with the bodywork on it. The reason I want to push that as, an, as a starter bike was full-price brand new is they were only $4,400. The second thing about them is, is that the 500cc gate parallel twin was a really ancient engine when it was even used in 89. But in this case, you have a motor that allows you to uh, start off slow. It runs at low revs, low, low revs really well, and one that will let you grow because it, it goes up to 9,000 RPM, and up there it's a screamer. It's also highly maneuverable, very lightweight. You can put it down, pick it back up very simply, and like I said, the biggest thing about it is you can grow with it. Plus, there's a ton of aftermarket support for this bike. You can put any kind of screaming pipes you wanted on, make it quiet. You can do whatever you want. So to me, even today, it is still one of the perfect starter bikes out there used. Um, and going with the, the same idea of that is if you really are someone who wants to go American, because I've owned both American and Japanese, is the uh, Buell Blast, which is hard to grow with. But what the nice thing about the Blast is, is that you get the single cylinder of a, of a Sportster, and it gets that lugging, it gives you that noise, it gives you everything a Harley experience gives you without all the monster costs of owning a Harley. You still have to take it to a, a Harley dealership for work, but at least it's really cheap. They were, again, about the same price as a 500 when they were new, and in this case, they're a 400cc bike. And it's, uh, it's low power, but again, you can grow with it, and it makes some really nice sounds, even if it's just a, a single lung machine. Blasts are really, really cheap right now. And they actually hold up really well. Um, I mean, they're, they're most of the components are are really fairly durable. The one complaint I have against the Blast as a beginner bike, and it's kind of ironic for something that uh, Harley used for mm. all of their uh, Rider's Edge courses for years, uh, it does not have the friendliest clutch. My no, my ahead. my wife and I took the. Uh, Rider's Edge course on on blasts, and that was her first motorcycling experience. And when she got her own bike, uh, she got a V Star 950, which really has one of the nicest cable operated clutches I've ever experienced. She was like, "Wow, this is just so much easier." So that would be my one criticism of that bike is, well, that and when you're sitting at a light, your your feelings are going to come out of your teeth. No, I was just saying, didn't uh, didn't the MSF uh, buy a bunch of uh, blasts as well for some of the MSF tier one, tier two classes? Or am I remembering that wrong? No, I, b I believe they did. In fact, they bought some the after Buell had discontinued them, and they just said blast on them, or they just said Harley Davidson on the tank or something. Eric Buell hated the blast. Didn't think it deserved to be called a Buell. Uh, it. He he thought it really tarnished the Buell reputation for innovation and you know kind of cutting edge technology. So uh, he he very famously crushed one and said that's the last Buell blast. And they were like, 
oh wait, we got more to sell. So, <laughs> okay, our subject today is uh, kind of related to that. Uh, Eric Buell Racing or EBR Racing is still not dead. And just to give our casual listeners who may not be familiar with Buell, Eric Buell started out building race bikes out of Harley. Harley bought his company and it became the, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, the sport bike version, the Weird Alice version of bikes for Harley that were not their typical cruisers. It didn't go over real well, and there's a million arguments or explanations that people have as to why it didn't work to sell Buells and Harley dealerships. Some people lay it on the bikes. Some people say Buell riders didn't want to come into Harley dealers. A lot of people say Harley dealers didn't like them, didn't know how to sell them, and didn't market them properly or turned people off when they when they came in for them. For whatever reason... There, I think there was also some corporate intrigue in that as well. Uh, Harley killed the Buell brand. Eric went out and started Eric Buell Racing EBR because he couldn't legally call his bikes Buell because Harley owned the name now. They went belly up, sold the ac- the uh, assets were sold off, and now the company that uh, I think it's Liquid Partners or Liquid Asset Partners or something has now begun manufacturing them again while they try to sell the company as a uh, going concern. And so the question is, is are they beating a dead horse? Is it just time to to you know pump it up with morphine and let it die? Are we in hospice care for EBR racing? The uh, standpoint from Harley is kind of interesting that with the things you were complaining about. As someone who bought one of their streets when it first came out and have since replaced it, the the dealership side of it, I would have thought they were going to treat me the same way as a Buell rider coming in because it is not a typical Harley. And the experience was actually very sim- was very easy. So I didn't have a problem with that. And I was surprised to hear that the dealers would be that way. But I'm, again, on the other side, I'm also not surprised because a lot of Harley dealers are purists and other ones are a lot more open. But I would say that now with their sportier, let's call it their sportier bikes, Harley has sporty bikes again. It would be advantageous for them to bring Yule back. I know sporty and Harley aren't two words that go together. But the it would be kind of, you know, you've got the motors and now you've got the, you know, the, the kind of the momentum back to to bring Buell back in, you'd give him that liquid cooled 750. It'd be kind of cool to see what he could mm-hmm. do with it. So I, I don't think it's a dead horse from their standpoint. He did. Yes. He, he always had that very problematic relationship with them that I could always, that from what I was seeing in the background. So I don't know if they'll bring them back. That's, that's, that's a, it's a good question. Well, I, that, uh, that, that, uh, it wasn't just that bridge that was burned. Um, to, to quote Sigourney Weaver, uh, they nuked that from space just to make sure. Okay, I mean, that there was there was there's nothing left in that relationship but a smoldering ruin, um, and that's from both sides. But Eric, for sure, because when he left, he did not leave on good terms, nor did he make any effort to 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 improve those over the, over time. And when he when he got his his second his you know, the third iteration of, of Buell motorcycles, because there was Buell motorcycles, went out of business, Harley bought it, and so two, and then now three with EBR, and now four with Reborn again. Uh, or five, if you want to count Hero bailing out EBR racing for a while before they said Which no. Which never happened, yeah. It, well, yeah, they, they gave him some, some money, but not what they said they were going to for 50%, um, or 55%. Anyways, um so yeah, when when he fired up the the company again, and he was just like, "Oh yeah, now I'm going to do it the way it should have been done, and I'm not going to be restricted." Yeah, that the Eric Buell and Harley never never two of those ever meet again. Um, and and my my noise and my face on Harley being sporty is like, well, when your sportiest bike is 550 pounds with 50 horsepower, I'm not going to call that sporty. Um, so Eric Buell is a very good engineer. 
He has done some really cool stuff. The whole engine mounting thing in in the street bike mules was good. Some of the stuff he did in the latest iteration with the racing stuff was good. Um, as a businessman, he's got awful. Uh, I mean, not well, even close. I, I I know people who have worked for him, both on the business and the racing side, and they kind of have the same opinion. I came to that separately, and I've talked with the people, and it's like, yeah, he's numbers for math for engineering. Yes, numbers for math for business, not so much. And it's it the 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 biggest point is. He had a bike that wasn't competitive in American racing and then wanted to go world superbike racing. And people kind of knew, he knew what the costs were of going world superbike racing, and he thought he was going to get bailed out by Amsoil, Hero, Hero and uh, one other company, I can't remember off the top of my head, and you know none of that ever happened. So he was wishing a prayer. There was no reality in anything he did. Um, so well, I think there is a, and, and this... We can expand this a little bit to more to just the business side of, of motorsports slash power sports in general. A lot of people go into business doing something they love because they're passionate about it. And my experience is those people almost always fail. I worked at one, two, three, a total of five motorcycle dealerships. The ones that were the coolest to work for, that that just were there because they loved what they were selling, are all out of business now. The guys who their passion was making money and being in business and running a business, and they didn't care whether they were selling motorcycles or widgets, those are the ones that are still winning awards from manufacturers for their sales volume. I just I have in front of me the latest uh, Power Sports Business Market Data Book from uh, 2015. If you look at unit sales for motorcycles right now, they're selling about half as many as they were selling in 2005-2006. It's a really lousy, lousy time to try to sell motorcycles. ATVs are down, well, they've dropped from almost 800,000 units down to 230,000 units. The one bright spot is side-by-sides. Uh, side-by-sides, side uh, The, the yeah. UTVs have doubled from a quarter of a million to about half a million in that same time period. Um, look at uh, personal watercraft. Look at look, you know, jet skis, whether we're talking stand-up or sit-down watercraft. They were selling, I want to say... Something like half a million units a year in the real heyday of the mid to late 90s. In 2000, that had already dropped below 100,000, and they're, they've been below 50,000 units since 2009. That, wow. it, that's just imploded. People don't need to buy a street bike. People with with very very few exceptions people don't need uh jet skis and they are so dependent on not only economic times but also just on trends everybody yeah. bought jet skis had them for about five or ten years and went oh you know what after a while you're just going around in circles in a lake um i'm gonna go buy a ATV or a side-by-side or something. I'm going to go do something else for fun. And then there was a million yeah. used ones on the market, and uh, Arctic Cat got into it and got out of it. Honda got into it and got out of it. Uh, Polaris got into it and got out of it. Uh, and and Polaris did it in a in a flood of red ink that the company just dealt with for years. Fortunately, they haven't lost their, their aggressive, innovative nature, which is why I love Polaris. Uh, just to, from from a corporate standpoint, they're they're really ballsy. So I just pulled up a couple numbers here. Um, I had it marked, and I had to find them again. <clears throat> so in 2015, Ducati sold 54,800 bikes worldwide. That's it. Yeah, um, and that was up 22 percent over 2014, which it- that's that's a significant number. And then BMW. Uh, sold in 2015. Oh, that's uh, sorry. This is a 2014 number. Sorry, 
Um, 123,500, close enough to 123,500. Uh, and even then, you think, wow, BMWs are ubiquitous for motorcycles. Yeah, apparently not. Well, there's there's a couple things to play here. One is the longevity of the machines themselves. They don't wear out too fast. Uh, the second part with the sales numbers, too, is if that's worldwide numbers, is a lot of countries are limited to uh, under 600 cc. And that will limit those companies that don't even have a model under there. Ducati does with the bottom of the monster line, I think. If I remember my, my models right. Uh, the, well, they used to have the 620. I believe they make a 420 used to be, I think, the... Don't they have a 400? Yes, they make a 400 now for... I don't know if they import it, but for those markets where you have to have something, they've got a sleeve-down version that I think is just a smaller bore. Oh, and they've got the scrambler. Oh no, that's uh, yeah, the scrambler. They are going to do a four hundred. They are going to do a four hundred scrambler if they aren't already. That's that's in the in the immediate plans, right? And I thought B, didn't be well. That was BMW had the six fifty for a single for a while, um, right? And weren't they doing something because they own what they own Husqvarna? So weren't they doing something with one of the well, smaller they, Husqvarna engines? They had the Husqvarna TR650 Strata and uh, Terra, but they sold Husqvarna to KTM. KTM. I think the numbers that you brought up point out something that even big manufacturers with a big dealer network and worldwide sales and a very known. Uh, identity among the general population aren't selling that many bikes. So if you're going to, hey, I'm going to you know start my own motorcycle company, especially when you're selling things that are as outrageously priced and as narrow focused as EBR sport bikes were uh, or are, I think that's a tough row to hoe. Well, speaking of Polaris, you've got the victory brand, which I was, I had my my vision tour. You've got a, a you know a large company behind a large motorcycle brand that doesn't sell, you know, it sells in one year what Harley sells in one month. So you know, they, and they have all the dealerships too to go with it. They have a large dealer network for that. So it's even harder on that. And from the other extreme side of a scale of starting a company small with a whole different ideal and then changing it would be Cleveland Cycle Works, who has pretty much failed, uh, even if they're dragging their bones along. Uh, because they just, for reliability's sake, which is why I didn't bring them up in the beginning thing with our old news. But the, so I can see that you're saying, like, that's why you have to partner up with a large company like Buell being with Harley because of the motors or things like that. You don't really have a choice. You have to do that if you have any chance. I mean, Eric had, he had used, didn't, sorry, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on this, but didn't he use a version of the uh, Rotax V Twin for the um, 1190s, right? Or is an evolution of the Rotax uh, twin for that? I can't remember now. Yeah, I believe you're right. I think it is a Rotax. Yeah. Yeah, so the uh, AF1 Aprilia, which is uh, one of, if not the largest uh, Aprilia dealer in the country, uh, big dealership down in um, Austin, Texas, they signed <laughs> they signed on for EB uh, to be an EBR dealer. They still have a few left. So here's the one that's funny. A 2012 EBR 1190 RS Carbon Edition, number 10 of 100, original MSRP, uh, $45,999. You can currently buy that for $29,999. If you want just a regular one um, for the RX, which was the sport bike version, uh, they were they stickered at 19 You can get one for uh, 15 and they'll deal on that number. And the SX, which was the kind of sit up and beg version, uh, stickered at 17, and that's kind of also on sale, on sale at 15, uh, and bring cash and they'll talk. So uh, they're, you know, doing what they can to get rid of that because they, it was a mess. I know a couple of those people down there, and it's, that was a mess. <laughs> I think the engine was an evolution of the Rotax 1000 twin. Don't. Quote me on that, but somewhere in the back of my head that rings a bell. And uh, I'm, I'm looking at Wikipedia, and they are saying that they are the, uh, yeah, Rotax Helicon. Ro- Rotax Helicon. Helicon. Uh, yeah, so that that's an evolution okay. of the orig- what was originally the Aprilia 1000cc that they did a bunch of stuff with and evolved it. But um, that's also the base of the 
motor for the Can-Am Spiders. So. And for the uh, Futuro, which is one of my favorite motorcycles that yeah, I would Futuro, love. the Tuano, the Falco, and the RSV. Right. I'll use that engine. So not that I'm an Aprilia fanboy or anything and know all those details. <laughs> but it's a really, really neat engine. Uh, oh, it's it's indestructible. You could, I mean, that thing is. You can ride that thing, as long as you do basic maintenance and don't kill it. It'll go a hundred thousand miles with no worries. Cause, oh, Capo Noir, because they people have done those and, and with that engine and those bikes too, um, which is their ADV bike. Um, but but yeah, to, so to go full circle, if he really wants to do something, if Buell wants to do something again, yes, he's going to have to partner with someone or find someone to supply him with motors. I mean, to do chassis engineering. That's not that hard. It's not that bad, and you, there's enough um, stuff to. He's got enough access to enough stuff to do it. The problem is, is with emissions. Emissions are ridiculously expensive to get through. Uh, if he ever wants to sell in Europe, especially because now they've got Euro six, Euro four, Euro six, Euro four, Euro four over there. Uh, and in 2018, in the U.S., we go up another tier for our emissions here. So. Um, that's like multi millions of dollars because bike you have to do multiple bikes and multiple sessions on multiple uh, uh, EPA dyno stuff for for sniff tests. So um, he's going to have to partner with someone if he wants to have a real go with this thing. In my mind, Eric Buell is the twenty first century version of Friedel Monk, which. Some listeners may not be familiar with. He was a German guy that originally, I think, was with Horex, and he was a either a genius or someone who liked to call himself a genius, which I think also kind of fits with Eric Buell. And uh, which one of those it is depends on who you ask. And he took an NSU car engine and built a motorcycle around it, and was always on the brink of bankruptcy. Uh, he built very small volumes and made them on and off in batches in different configurations for years and years and did weird things like he felt like spoke wheels couldn't stand the horsepower of the the NSU, I think it was a 1300cc air-cooled four-cylinder car engine. So he cast his own rear wheels but it was an incredibly expensive casting process for this rear wheel because that's how he was going to do it. And it was shaft drive because he didn't think a chain could stand to the, the massive power of this engine. And he just kind of struggled along doing this weird thing. And at some point he sold the Munch, Munch name. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. So after a while he couldn't use that. That reminds me so much of Eric Buell selling his name and not being able to call him Buells. But, yeah. I'm trying to think of how to answer that. That's, but you're you're dead on with that with that kind of with that approach and having to. That's also a case of the past versus now too, where there's where you could almost get away with that. There's it's getting even harder and harder to do that in this day and age. And look at if you look at the uh, niche the niche motorcycles, uh, well sport bikes anyways, but even some of the dirt bikes. Um, I mean, KTM is in existence because, A, they do a lot of production in Thailand, so they have low cost there, and then they have Red Bull backing them for a lot of stuff, so there's sort of non-traditional money coming in there. Um, Ducati exists because Audi owns them, and Philip Morris backs to the tune of about $40 million a year all of their racing efforts. MV Agusta is now owned by Mercedes-Benz. Um, Aprilia is the whole Piaggio group. So you're selling, you know, a million and a half scooter. Well, you know, relatively speaking, a ton of scooters to fund, you know, Aprilia, uh, Moto Guzzi and one other one can't think of off the top of my head, but point being any motorcycle company pretty much, well, we can even go and go into the Japanese Honda. Well, Honda motor company, Yamaha, you know, engineering motorcycles, instruments, Kawasaki Heavy Industries, they make more money building, doing shipping stuff than anything else. Um, and who are we freaking? Suzuki is a conglomerate, uh, is another conglomerate, but very small, which is why they're always kind of dicey on money. So, I mean, most of these companies that have anything are, are part of larger, larger organizations, and, and the motorcycles are very, very small. And Bombardier would be another one, <laughs> you know, um, for well, all the ATV actually, stuff they do. Actually, uh, 
BRP has been spun off as its own company specifically because it wasn't making the profit that the trams and trains and aircraft were. They kind of had to go their own way. As far as I've heard, they were invited to spin themselves off. (laughs) (laughs) Polaris is probably the one that's most focused on motorcycles, but they also have the the RZR side-by-sides that they're making a lot of money on, and snowmobiles. Yamaha has snowmobiles. Uh, Suzuki has cars, not in the United States anymore, but they still sell cars. Bombardier owns Rotax, which is all over the place, and even, you know, uh, ultralight engines and things like that. Snowmobiles. Uh, everybody's got their hand in something else, either cars or, as you said, they're, they're part of something larger. And I think the idea of, I'm going to make street motorcycles for the U.S. market and make money just isn't a valid business model. Going to Polaris, it's even further than just the motorcycles because they've moved all of their manufacturing except for motorcycles outside the U.S. They did that back two or three years ago now. So the only things they build in the U.S. now are Victory and Indian. So they don't even bother. It's one of the ways they're saving money and being able to continue is they've built everything in Mexico. But I my issue... With some of these companies, the Buell, one of the things you pointed out was the, the, the MSRP on the Buells as well, is, is when you try to build a niche motorcycle, your your the price range is just outrageous. I mean, you can't even, if you need that volume or you even just need to, to make a name for yourself, you just can't. I mean, they're, they're, they're price, all the price range of the American brands are just just outrageous. Polaris's victory is lowest spike, and for that matter, Indian's victories is 13 grand. An Indian, I think, is down to eighty eight hundred now for the sixty, but it's it's what you're running into. And like sitting with Buell, there was except excluding the blast, I think the lowest they sold a bike for was about thirteen or fifteen, if I remember right. And that goes back a few That's, years. Yeah, I would say fifth, fourteen, fifteen for the EBR stuff was was that. And when it was still under Harley, I think even then you were looking at in the you know early two thousands. I think they were somewhere north of ten thousand or right around you know close to it. Um, even even back then, so I think if you look at the history, we've had some some anomalies. The early seventies, when everybody was buying motorcycles, and uh, the early nineties, everybody was buying motorcycles. And I think there's a lot of people who have a short enough view of it, at least in the United States, that. They think that's the way it always is, <laughs> and uh, it, it's not accurate. You're taking the peaks and saying, yeah, this is where we expect things to go from there, and that's not the case for, for a, a lot of history of at least 20th century into today. Motorcycles were not an easy sell. So you hit on a, you hit on something interesting, well, at least for the U.S. In Europe, it's different because transportation over there is completely different, so small motorcycle scooters sell and always sold to younger younger demographic here not so much um but you hit on a hit on an interesting cycle is about every 15 to 20 years you saw a big uptick in motorcycle sales so um gis come back from world war ii there was a pickup there and then fell off and as they got older okay they're doing it again their kids or if they had kids you know 18 to 25 you're starting that early 60s period and that carried into the 70s, you saw them, the, the kids of the baby boomer generation coming up, plus the older you know, vets maybe buying again. 90s, 2000s, you see that. But since 2000, so it was about an every 20-year cycle, but since 2000, we've had two major recessions. Uh, we had the dot bomb uh, that happened in you know late 01, early 02, and that carried through pretty much 04. And then we had about three breaths of air, and then we had the latest recession, which, depending on where you lived here in Detroit, started in 2007, but everywhere else started about 2008, eight nine with the mortgage, first with the mortgage uh, blow up and then the auto industry blowing up. You know, that cratered the economy, something tremendous. So, And then you have a, the, the latest generation with the millennials who just aren't interested in anything transportation-related. Now, the next generation, Gen Z, there is hope. So you've got this big gap of like 25, 20 to 25 years now where it's like sales are down, people aren't interested, uh, either because they just aren't interested in transportation or they've been financially wiped out on more than one occasion. So do I really want to go spend 15 grand or 20 grand on a motorcycle, even 10, when, you know, 
there's so many other things to do. I think one of the other factors in the whole thing on the street bike side is traffic is totally different than it is it was even in 1980 when I started riding. The traffic congestion and the traffic speeds and the the number of distracted drivers is so much greater that I'm not sure if I was 17 and I wanted to find a hobby whether that would be something that would really turn me on because it's a whole lot more work and you have very few uh, significantly fewer occasions to just go out find yourself on an empty road and just relax and enjoy cruising down the road without somebody cutting you off or flying past you or especially on a smaller bike or just generally the obnoxious traffic quotient is just so much higher i would and go forward with that too to go back to cost if you are 17 the even used bikes kind of are very much inflated in value so it's just there is no more 300 and 500 dollar motorcycles to go grab as your first bike availability of cheaper bikes is becoming far further and further away especially with everybody financing even their first ones so you just don't and then expecting their 250s to be worth four grand the day that they sell it like they bought it a month ago the distracted driving thing is is dead on. Um, as someone who's been riding myself, I've only been riding for about twenty years, and it's just it you just it's just not. You know, if I, I have a, a son who's about to turn sixteen, and I very much want to be riding with him. That's my plan, is to have a second bike and him go out with me. But I'll be honest, it scares the heck out of me to to put him out there with a with a world full of cell phones. You know, my very first near miss with a cell phone was back in ninety eight with a woman who did that. And now in modern days, you've got the same problem. I mean, this is even getting to be worse. So it's where I live. Our traffic isn't as bad because I'm in flyover part of PA. It's kind of a scary time to get into this because it's just getting to be both expensive from the standpoint of ownership insurance and just pure dangerous. I mean, here in PA, we don't have the helmet laws, which makes our insurance even higher. Another discussion for another time. That's that's it, it all adds up. So if I want to get my 60 year old son into the hobby, I'm either going to have to go the scooter route or I don't completely know how. And, and on the flip side, there have been so many land closures and there have been such environmental pressures on the dirt bike side. Unless you live out in one of the Rocky Mountain states where there are a lot of federal land that's that's truly open for riding wherever you want to go. Owning a dirt bike makes less and less sense. It's kind of the same thing as the watercraft problem of unless you live someplace where you've got, you know, the intercoastal waterway to go play around in, you're going to spend a whole lot of money for something and find yourself going in circles on a small plot of land. And and, and there's two, two things on that. Number one, the env- when you mentioned the environmental thing, I think that's the biggest factor, not just the land closure side. Um, but the move to push everyone to four strokes, A, more expensive to produce, so that drove up costs. Two, when you had a two-stroke, I mean, you could rebuild that engine in 35 minutes if you were having a slow day for a piston you know, a piston kit and a ring and maybe a couple other, you know, you could have a cheap hone and clean out the cylinder. You know, it didn't cost anything to rebuild. Now, some of the four-stroke dirt bikes, you want to service them or have to rebuild after three or 400 hours. I mean, that's, it's a major amount of money and it's driven a lot of kids out of, out of even racing dirt bikes because families can't afford it. I think another thing that is a big problem is the noise. You know, if you're anywhere near any kind of residential area, the idea of having a motocross track or an enduro course where anybody can hear those bikes, forget it. Nobody wants one in their backyard anymore. And what used to be, I think, tolerated noise-wise is now seriously antisocial. And it's a shame because they're a lot quieter than they ever were, but it's still an issue. You know, like I said, I'm, I'm out here in central PA, and we have the land to do that, and it's not even out here. And so like I said, with the dirt bike side, you're not going to – you're just not going to see that. You're going to end up having to use it mostly as an Enduro to use it on on the street if it is if it is even street legal the, the one you bought which i think is why we're seeing kind of an explosion in the adventure bike side it's something you can take off road but it's big enough that you can still go out take it long distance and keep up with traffic even like the 500 singles and stuff i know there are people who think wow that's a really small bike to be out 
dicing it up with the commuters coming home, whereas something like a, a GS or a, a KTM 1190 or something is a big enough bike that you can use it on the street and you can still do a little bit of, you know, cow trailing on it when you get the opportunity. And there's also that from the Harley side more than anything else, one of the American attitudes that the bike has to be at least 800 cc or you know a, a start again going back to the star bike that it's got to be an 800 cc or a, you know people have these thoughts in their mind that say a 250 or 500 is not streetable I mean, when a 500 is streetable and things like that or a 650 is very streetable and it's but it's that that mindset is hard yeah 30 years ago i would you know that where a lot of that comes for 30 plus years ago I, that attitude made sense but now when you have 600s and 650 twins making power that a thousands did even 15 years ago and even like the the 390 ktms and yamahas and you know they're making 50 right 50 close to 50 horsepower 55 horsepower i think that was 650 700 cc motorcycles even 20 years ago so well my in originally intruder when i bought it it was the s50 uh, boulevard it made 44 horsepower, something like that. It was a uh, 800cc bike, but power-wise, it doesn't make that much. And I never really thought, gee, this is not a bike that I can take out on the highway. I think some of it is the, the chassis, a heavier, more solid bike feeling is as important in people's perceptions as the raw amount of peak power the engine's making. Uh, having owned bikes... In, in the 500cc class, I had an S uh, a C50 myself with that 850cc motor. That attitude is is something that would really be nice to change, but it's not. I think we're not, we're definitely that's never going back. You know, you're not. Well, when, seeing, they, when they refer to 900cc bikes as midsizes, yes. I have to chuckle because that used to be a 400 or a 450. A 750 was a big bike when I yep. started in 1980. And even now, it's, it's, it even wasn't that long ago. A seven fifty was a big bike. It's that it's there is an attitude, and I don't see it changing because we're, you know, as Americans, this is our attitude, and this is the way we are. Plus, again, with the cost, you don't want two bikes; you want one bike that does everything. So you have this thought in your mind that okay, I'll go buy the six hundred pound, and in my case, a cruiser, a uh, six hundred pound motorcycle, and that'll be my first bike, and I'll be fine with it. Not realizing that you've just doomed yourself to never riding more than a thousand miles a year for that first year and never getting a chance to know what a proper, you know, first bike is like to, to want to keep going. I will tell you the story that I've shared numerous times, but one of the big moments in my life that kind of changed my attitude was I had a friend when I was in the army who had a KZ 1300. He bought a leftover non-current one uh, from a dealer that had it, I think sitting in the warehouse, even unassembled, and he was like, wow, I really like the original naked KZ-1300. And the guy's like, you want one? I'll sell it to you for what it, you know, I've been paying flooring charges on this thing forever. I'll be glad to just sell it to you at dealer cost. So he bought one, and he was thrilled with it. In motorcycling, it was the bridge too far. It was, you know, they got bigger and bigger and, and more top-heavy and more powerful. And then we had this water-cooled six-cylinder, basically a car engine. He let me ride it, and... I pulled out of the parking lot. He was like, yeah, yeah, take it for a ride. And he got on my bike, and I got on his. And the first turn at low speed turning out of the driveway onto a side street, I truly panicked, thinking as I fell into the turn, it was just going to keep going over, and I was just going to dump it on its side. So I kind of goosed it, and I gave a whole lot of, of pressure on the bars to hold it in the turn. And I thought, this is the worst bike ever. I can't imagine why anyone would want this. I got out there, I wicked it up to about 75 miles an hour, and all of a sudden I thought, wow. Trucks were going by me, and I wasn't getting blown around, and the, it was a pretty gusty day, and the wind wasn't bothering me, and it just felt so planted, and it, the thing's a mile wide, and I just sat back on it, and I felt great, and I thought, wow, this is terrific. I love this bike. And we got off the highway, and turned around, and going back, I was back to hating it again by the time we parked it because it was so much effort off the freeway. And I thought, there really is no perfect motorcycle because at the time, I was driving an XL600R that was great for on post and driving around. But when you got on the highway, it didn't have that feeling of just, 
I don't have to worry about what the bike's doing. It's smooth. It's comfortable. And I'm just going to go and not worry about anything at 70, 75, 80 miles an hour. No matter what you do with bikes, you're always going to be missing something, which is why so many people have more than one motorcycle. And I, I don't, I'm having in the last 18 months owned a thousand pound Victory Vision Tour, and then the unfortunate, the, the street, going to the street, and now the Sportster 12. Your street's a 750, right? My street was a 750, okay. yeah. For, I, I, for those of you who don't know and might not know bikes, he's not just saying he has a street Harley. He has a Harley 750 street is the model name. Yeah, that's the, it was actually, in fact, going back to the idea of an under 600cc bike for farm markets. It is built for that month. That was the reason it was that it existed was to be built for that. And I had gone from my victory, which again was 900, and, 900 pounds empty, not including six quarts of oil, five gallons of gasoline, and everything else on myself, to the street, which weighed a lot less. And one of the things that got what happened was is the very first thing I did is started putting miles on it. Where the victory had sat, except for those long trips, and my gosh, was that victory awesome for three hundred mile days. You, you, uh, uh, having a luxury ca- sitting on a two-wheeled couch is, is just amazing when you get a chance to do it. But the the street was you just I could take it out of the garage for ten minutes. I could go put it on the highway, um, and not really be too scared putting it on the highway. It was just so nice to be able to come in and out. And then so, but I'm saying I want to go back to the idea of the, the, the beginners. The Sportster is now that unfortunately I had to move from the street to from the Harley Davidson street to the Sportster. I'm finding I'm going backwards again, where it's not as easy to take the thing out of the garage. It, you were talking about the momentum of a bike wanting to go, or um, the bike wanting to go sideways. Why am I talking fast? The the bike wanting to lean over. The ergonomics and the handling of a Sportster, especially the twelve is twelve hundred, is just awful. And compared to the street, all I wanted to do with the street was every day take it out. I put. 1,300 miles on it in three months. So, I, I want to digress back to our old business. Would you recommend a sport or a, a street 750 to a new rider as as their first bike? Let me expand on it real quick. One is, is that the streets they use in the Motorcycle Safety Foundation class and in the Harley starter classes is a street 50 with softer suspension put on it. So it's street, kind of harder. Street 500. Street 500, sorry. The street 500 is what they use in their MSF classes and the Harley license classes. They put a softer suspension on it, so it's not really perfect. Like when you ride it, it's not what like riding the actual Harley streets. Like I had a very bad street. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go two two ways on this. Mine went through four fuel pumps in three months, which is I, I called mine the uh, the AMA bowling bike, going back to Harley <laughs> of the '70s because I had such a horrible oh, AMF. AMF, sorry. Mine was the AMF bowling bike. That's what I lovingly called my street. And because it was just horrible. I mean, I was eating fuel pumps like crazy. But when you buy a first-year bike, this is your problem. And it was the first year it had been out, and I paid the price. That being said, I loved that bike to death. I loved that bike. It was so... It was the perfect UJM. It was the perfect universal Japanese motorcycle. Um, it just, was a, just wasn't Japanese and wasn't a it, four-cylinder. Right. It was, it, it, so it kind of silly to say that, but go, it, was like, it was like a newer version of my GS500. It was so, it was water-cooled where the GS wasn't. Um, fuel economy was ridiculously awful. You only got 42 miles a gallon, which is not what a 750 should get. And that's rated from the factory too, which is even worse. And like I said, build quality was bad. All that being said, they fixed a lot of that for the 2016. Um, I would take this over a Sportster in a heartbeat as a first bike or even as a as a commuter bike. It is, like I said, well, uh, it was great to sit on, great to ride. I was able to dice in traffic with no problems. Uh, being a Harley, you get the bigger wheels, uh, even on a other sportier bike. I'll put quotes around that. The So, yeah, I would recommend it. I would have recommended it in a heartbeat because it's it's a uh, I I love that bike and it looked good too. I, and I think let's bring this back to our financial thing. Harley's not making any money on those. The only reason that that's in production is well, they're probably making money on it overseas. The Indian built ones. And one thing that's interesting about the Street five hundred and seven fifty is I work for a tier one supplier to Harley that didn't even know these parts were going to be designed and made until they were in production overseas. It's assembled in the United States. It was designed and built by 
people in India. Right, it's for the Indian um, market. Yeah, it, it's being assembled here so they can say it's U.S. built, so they can sell it here to people who are jingoistic enough to think that they have to have something assembled in the United States. They have to have something other than the now-gone blast to equip their riders' courses with. So they, they have a lot of practical reasons why they need that bike. Making a profit is not one of them. So, and Entry-level drug there. They'll give you, they give you the hit... Uh, for free the first time or, or break even because what they're going to do is you're going to come in and then you'll buy you know three thousand dollars worth of accessories for it and now they've made money on it right exactly my wife and i in 2010 when she started a ride i'm ashamed to admit this i had never taken the msf riders course so i went ahead and went through it with her and we took the Rider's Edge Harley version just because the other option was Suzuki GZ250s, which for a six-footer is just a dinky little bike. And the, the blasts are, for all their failings, sized for full-size adults. adults. So we took it at the Harley dealer. They spend like half a day trying to take you around and show you all the accessories that they have in their accessory department. And if you look at Going back to my uh, market data book on power sports, the numbers on accessories and apparel and parts, that is what is keeping a lot of motorcycle dealerships afloat. They make their profit on clothing, boots, helmets, gloves, uh, and and repair parts. Go, going back to service oh, a little bit in there, but they're not surviving on major unit sales. No, uh, the street being a fir- owning the street 750 in its first year, that was so anti Harley because there were no aftermarket parts. If you went through the car- car- the the catalog, it didn't exist. The only aftermarket parts for the street actually were Italian, of all things, which again goes back to my AMF bowling bike thing. The so Aramachi. you wanted that, yeah, I know. It's actually saw an Aramachi uh, at the AACA Museum in Hershey. And it just, uh, or an H, a Harley Aramachi, and it just, uh, I loved it. I took so many pictures of it because, again, having owned the street. But yeah, you get that same thing where I went in there, their attitude was not to sell me parts. But then again, I'm in one of the, one of the biggest dealers in Pennsylvania, happens to be the one I was using. There were no parts available. So they were just like, yeah, great, welcome to Harley. And they were, I was expecting to get the cold shoulder. How dare you buy a $6,000 Harley Davidson? Do you not know that that's the cost of moving your engine up from an 800 to a 1200? And here they were, they welcomed me with open arms, and it was just very, very strange to get that attitude. That was extremely weird. Okay, let's com- contrast that with when I went in to look at Buell's right when Buell was kind of making noise that they weren't going to be around. They were still selling them. I think they were still in production, but it was right at the edge of yeah, they're going away. Now this is a, a major, big lifestyle Harley dealer here in town. And I went in, and I think they had four Buells. They had uh, Ulysses and um, a couple of, I forget what the other ones were. And I was sitting on the Ulysses, and the guy walks over to me and says, Goofy, ain't they? And I was like, yeah, kind of neat. And he's like, well, hopefully you like having the front wheel in the air, because these are wheelie machines. You just you can't hardly ride these things. They're just so short and so tall that that front wheel is going to be coming up on you all the time. And I thought, if I was a new rider that didn't know that this guy didn't know what he was talking about, is, is that your sales pitch for somebody who's already expressed enough inf- interest to come over and sit on the bike? And then you tell him everything is wrong with it. It's like, no wonder Buells didn't sell. Because you're bashing a product that you obviously haven't even taken the time to learn about. Or he took one out on a test drive and he wheelied it unexpectedly and that tainted his perception. I don't know what the, the deal was, but it was like the worst salesmanship I have ever experienced. Yeah, I could see that because when, when I got the street, the, I actually had a guy who, as it turned out, found out was 80, giving me the test drive. We went on a 10-mile test drive, which I've never seen a dealer do. When I bought my Suzuki, that was the worst experience when I bought my Boulevard because they wouldn't even let me test drive it because, well, you know, no e-ticket rides, no free rides. So you go to the Harley, and all of a sudden they're like, "What's going along, ride?" And the guy actually owned one. He bought the first one into the dealership, and he took me into corners and all kinds of like 
trying everything out that this bike could do. And that wasn't just a simple go down the highway and come back. This was all back roads. Here's the problem with, with Harley, the difference in the dealerships. One dealership you'll go to is amazing, easy to deal with, and wonderful. And then you go to the one down the street that's five miles away, and they want to rip you off horribly, and then go with that dealership approach. Even in the same dealership. Now, this is the only Harley dealership I have been to is the same one I'm talking about. It's the only one I've been into in probably six or eight years. Walked in one time uh, with my wife. And it was before she bought her Can-Am, and they had a... It was before they made their own trikes, but they had a Lehman-converted Sportster trike on the floor that she wanted to look at. The guy's engaged, asking her questions and stuff like that. And it was it was a really positive experience because of the salesman. 18 months earlier, we had gone in when my wife was just shopping for her first bike. And he walks up and he says, what can I do you for? And I said, well, my wife's interested in a bike. And he turns to me and says, what does she want? I'm like, I don't know. She's right there. Why don't you ask her? How much riding experience does she have? I'm like, no, she's right there. Go talk to her. Yeah. And and my wife at that point said, I'm not really that interested. And we turned around and walked out. But she was like, I can't believe that guy is not more clued in to how to sell to a female you know, he was so bigoted in his attitude, and it came through so clearly. And then a year and a half later, she goes in, and the guy was really, unfortunately, didn't make a sale because she bought the Can-Am Spider instead. But was Same guy? No, no, no. Totally different oh. guy. And, and his attitude okay. was really 180 degrees. Either he was just a little bit smarter, or they had done some real sensitivity training in a year and a half. And ironically, that Harley dealer is female-owned. Um. With both the uh, server, the person who I worked with, my salesperson was female, and actually my um, outside of the service manager too. But also, when we did the paperwork, uh, the finance manager was female as well. So you didn't, you know, I wasn't going to have that problem. But I've seen that problem myself, even in auto dealerships, where you actually, as an ex-car salesman, I saw that being a car salesman, and I saw that on the flip side when you're buying a car too, to, to see that kind of attitude. And Harley doesn't have enough of a market anymore that's the they've spun off well you mentioned mv gusta before they owned mv they, they owned Augusta briefly actually i think they owned it more than briefly i was surprised when you said that they just who owns them now because that was the first time i'd seen that but the they can't afford to have that attitude anymore they the people who typically buy harleys don't exist anymore they're starting to age out they're age, either they own the bike they're going to keep the rest of their lives or they're aging out of the of the market so they have to bring in the new blood using something like the street. Because if you go in with a woman, the first thing they're going to say is, is you know, let's look at a sports trip. Okay. I think that uh, we have gotten so far off the topic of this that uh, we probably should wrap it up. Wayne, thanks for joining us. And uh, Eric, as always. Always and, fun. And we'll be back next week.